0: Romans helps us to see how, but even there we're pointed to Jesus and sometimes we're slow to recognize it and so in this letter, God makes it plain. In the previous weeks, we've seen the deep problem brought about by the fall and we've seen God's right to judge against that and we've even seen that with the law in our hands, we still can't climb back into God's good graces, so to speak, because our sin is not just behavioral, It's genetic. We can't get rid of it, no matter what we do. And we've seen as well God's solution to our lack of righteousness, which is to provide His own righteousness to be received by us by faith. But there's more than that. There's more than that here, Paul says, beginning in chapter 5 and on through chapter 8. I think it's one of the most encouraging sections of Scripture because I think Paul's intent And these next four chapters is to persuade us that our justification by faith assures us of sharing in God's glory. So Romans 5. I'm actually going to begin in chapter 4, verse 22, but we'll really focus on the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Romans 4, verse 22. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May we pray. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us eyes to see your gospel in these great words that you gave to the Apostle Paul. Would you cause us to recognize this good news and to love it because you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm glad to have our stage back. That enormous, clunky set that reached all the way out to the front row was treacherous. And every time Aaron or I or Rich stepped down onto that narrow little stepway that helped us get up and down and back and forth, at least I was always afraid that I was just going to stumble and fall and crash into the front row. And I really want for you to think that I'm athletic. And that wasn't helping me at all. But on that stage, a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember we had a very happy occasion when Brian and Ashlyn Welch brought their five daughters up for baptism. And it was a beautiful picture of the blessing of the gospel, really a a really fun family picture to see that, how our children are blessed through the faith of their parents. And as those five girls gathered from little Juliet up to tall Sophie, Lining up all five of them in their pretty pink dresses to be baptized, our oldest son leaned over to me and he said, I hope there's a lot of water in that bowl. It was a good observation for a little guy. He was right. Maybe he's noticed how when we baptize someone, whether a baby or a grown-up, we scoop as much water as we can in our hands and pour it over their head. And he knew it was going to take a lot of water. He was right. I assured him that there was certainly enough water in the bowl to cover all five of them. But as I thought about it then, I realized that I also wanted to say, yes, enough water, there is for sure, but there's more than that. There's more than that there because we surely know that there's the expectation that by grace the call of the gospel will reach the ears of those baptized ones. We also know with certainty, I believe, that God looks with favor upon them because by the faith of their parents, they now wear the covenant sign that God Himself instituted for His gospel. And we know as well the unquestionable fact that the gospel promises await them as they respond in faith that only God Himself can give to them. Yes, there's plenty of water. But more than that, there is the undeniable truth that God who made us and against whom our fallen hearts are bent has not left us without hope. And you, as a believer in Jesus, can be assured that your faith is not in vain. That is, I think, what Paul's intent is as he enters into a new section of this great letter He has just explained in previous chapters the nature of our need in sin. He's explained the nature of God's righteous judgment against that sin. And he's explained as well the nature of God's gracious gift of justifying us by crediting His righteousness to us by faith. And now, I think his intent is to assure us that that faith is not in vain. If you have justification by faith, if you have received that great gift, then more than that, you can fully anticipate, Paul says, glorification. That is, you know in your heart of hearts, even if you're a skeptic of the gospel, even then, you know in your heart of hearts that as you look around the world, around you, you see that it is not what it should be. It's not what it's supposed to be. And even more, perhaps, and importantly, as you look at yourself, if you're honest, you recognize that you are not what you're supposed to be. But in the end, one day, in glory, God will make all things right. And a Christian can be assured of glory, Paul says, because of what you have, what you know, and what you see in the gospel. What do you have in the gospel? What does Paul tell us? Verse 1, he says, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What do you have in the gospel? Paul says you have peace with God and you have access into the grace in which you stand. In other words, you have a standing before God. You have a place to stand before him, Paul says. And because of these things, you can, as a believer, rejoice in hope of glory. You can fully expect and anticipate that glory is for you one day because of these things that you have that is you can be assured that your faith is not in vain you have peace and you have standing now you have to recognize i think obviously that it doesn't mean that a christian is always at peace if they are then i'm missing something i know and i'm sure that you are as well a christian is not always at peace that's not what this means at all there's a difference between having peace with God and having the peace of God. Those are two different things. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes to them, don't be anxious about anything, but rather by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God and what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace of God that Paul writes to the Philippians about is a gospel promise. To be sure, it's an important one. It's one that you should seek after and hope for and rely upon. But it's not this one. It's not the same gospel promise that we have here. Paul has, in Romans, of course, just explained that God is not at peace with the world. Rather, He's at war with the world. In Romans 1, he wrote, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is at war with the world. And Paul goes on and even refutes those who may think that this wrath is deserved by everyone else outside of themselves. Paul says, no, even you, because your sin is not just behavioral, it's genetic. Even you are at war with God. And Paul shows how God has turned his just wrath upon the only one who could bear it, Jesus, the righteous one. And those who believe are then counted as righteous, just like Abraham was. Paul writes, they are no longer at war with God, but rather at peace. Now, we all want peace. We all want peace. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. You want peace because we all struggle with our sinful discontent. We all do. You know, people who live in Dallas want to live in Colorado. And people who live in Colorado, believe it or not, really would like to live at the beach. People who are intelligent students and bright A-plus students in school really wish that they were good athletes, And the athletic one wishes that he was a superstar. Single people want to be married, and married people on many days wish they were single again. And the childless couple longs to have children, and on a bad day, there are many parents who would happily give theirs to them. Right? We all struggle with our sinful discontent. We don't have peace because the sin that is behavioral and even more deeply, genetic in us brings deep guilt, which we simply try to soothe with whatever we don't yet have. And so the question for you and the question for me, whether you're a believer or not, the question is, what will you do with your guilt? What will you do with it? Because until you have peace with God... Through justification, by faith alone in the righteousness of Christ alone, the best you can do is to covet what you don't have and pretend that it's enough. Through justification, we have peace with God, but we also, Paul says, have standing with Him as our Heavenly Father, he says, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And Paul will elaborate on that as he goes on into this section, especially in chapter 8, where he continues the same reasoning of access to God as our Father to prove the very same point of our assuredness of glory. He says there, we have the spirit of adoption by which we call Abba, Father, And the result of that is that being God's children, we are heirs of all that He has in glory. Because of what you have in the gospel, peace with God, and standing as beloved children before a heavenly Father, these coming out of your justification by faith, you can be assured that your faith is not in vain and never will be. Because of what you have in the gospel, you can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But there's more than that, of course. Not only does what we have in the gospel assure us of glory, but also what we know in the gospel assures us of glory as well. What do we know? Paul writes in verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, what do we know in the gospel? We know something about suffering, which has for ages perplexed philosophers who have always tried to figure out why suffering exists. It's one of the great philosophical questions. Why does suffering exist? Well, as believers in the gospel, we know not only the cause of suffering, that it comes out of the effects and results of the fall, And our rebellious hearts against the one who makes all things right. That's where all suffering comes from. It's where it originates. But we also know not only the cause, but the reason for it. And the reason for suffering in the life of a Christian is simply this. It is to prove your claim on glory. That's what Paul says here. That's what he suggests to us. And he takes us through several steps to get there, doesn't he? First of all, he says that our suffering, in which we rejoice, produces endurance. This suffering is the tribulation or the the trials of simply living life in a fallen world, living in the midst of the effects of sin. Everybody knows it and everybody endures it. These effects of the fallen world. Everybody lives in that world together And we all endure those things. And a skeptic might suggest that suffering that comes from these things, wherever it may come from, is all the more reason to disbelieve in God because a skeptic would suggest that if God is both good and powerful, then he would prevent suffering. But he doesn't, and so he must not be good, or he must not be powerful, or he must not be either of those things because if he were He would prevent suffering. Of course, the false assumption of that is that to prevent suffering of every type for every one is a good thing. That's the working assumption of that argument. And Paul suggests otherwise, and every good parent knows otherwise too. You know that if you simply protect and shield your children from every disappointment, from every heartache, from every consequence of evil even in their own hearts. They'll simply grow up to be spoiled and weak and unable to endure the realities of life in a fallen world. You know that. That's simply true. There were people by the thousands lining up this week at health centers and doctors' offices to get the flu shot, right? They were verifying this truth by going to the doctor and asking for suffering, what they were doing was asking for even the brief pain of a shot, but more than that, the, the, the brief and small infection of the flu itself in their body because they know that if they have that momentary suffering, then their body will be able to endure against the sickness when it really arrives in their home. Some people spend their entire lives cushioning themselves against any possible suffering and any possible consequence of bad. And so in the end, they can't endure anything, even the smallest inconvenience or discomfort. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance, in turn, produces character. Now, this character is the quality of someone or something that has been put to the test and come through it before he faced the giant Goliath, David, was given by King Saul the king's armor, his helmet and his coat of mail to wear over him to protect his body from this giant. And David had these things put on his body and he felt it for a moment and then he said, I can't go with this armor. It doesn't feel right. I haven't tested it, he said. And so he took it off and he went without it because Its character was not proven to him. You can usually recognize the mature character of a Christian who has endured suffering. Maybe the loss of a child, or maybe uh, abuse by a spouse, or some significant material loss. You can usually recognize the maturity resulting in such a one, because they have been proven out through the trial. At some point, you have had to endure the sin of another person, probably in the midst of this very congregation. And it's that sort of thing that drives people away from churches and off to other churches where they hope that they won't find the same kind of conflict. And we've endured the sin of other people, whether their anger or their unjust judgment against us, or maybe their laziness, or even their selfish pursuit of some sin of their own that denied us some right and good that we should have had from them. We've all endured those things. Some of you perhaps have been stung by an unfaithful spouse, and whether the marriage survived or not, the pain ran deep, and you recognize it, and you know it. Some have begun to lose their good health, whether by disease or age, and the frustration can be very great. But your Heavenly Father does not spare you from that suffering. He does not spare you from it because He knows that that suffering will produce a sanctified character that grows out of it, and He wants for you to see it. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't come from nowhere, you know. Love and joy and peace, patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things don't just automatically come to you when you profess faith in Christ. Those things are born out of a life of enduring the suffering that comes of living in a fallen world. Consequently, then, the character that comes from those Sufferings, the fruits of the Spirit, the sanctified nature of a believer produces hope. Now, this hope is not the uncertain desire of something that we want sometime in the future, but we're not sure of receiving, but we hope for it. That's not what this is all about. This biblical idea of hope, which Paul speaks of many cases elsewhere in the New Testament, is rather the absolute certainty. without, without beyond the shadow of a doubt, the absolute certainty of the glory of God, which is coming our way without a doubt. The fruit of character and repentance that can only be born of the Spirit at work. And if the Spirit of God is at work, then your faith is not in vain. The character that's produced grants you a certain hope for the glory that's to come. But maybe if in your experiences of suffering you recognize in yourself that you simply chafe against God and maybe in your heart of hearts you simply point fingers, angry fingers, at other people whom you blame for your suffering, maybe, maybe you should recognize that the spirit of life is not at work in you and maybe it's proof of that and you need to repent. The reason we rejoice in suffering is that suffering produces and verifies our hope for glory. Everyone suffers hardship in some way at some point, but if you're born again, that hardship will produce the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of rejecting your own sin and trusting instead in God's righteousness. We know all those things and there's one more thing that we do know which assures us of glory and that is in verse 5 Paul writes that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now in the next four chapters as I've said, Paul's main concern I think is to persuade us that justification by faith leads to glorification and one of the means of that assurance is, we have to admit it, entirely subjective. Paul's just told us that we know because God's love has been poured into our hearts. And anybody can claim that. How am I to know that the love of God has or has not been poured into your heart? Purely subjective, isn't it? Paul continues the same reasoning again in chapter 8. He kind of ties up the loose end there where he says that the Spirit himself Bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And thus also heirs of God's glory, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You hear the connection with the suffering. But Paul there says that the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. It is entirely subjective, isn't it? Anybody could claim that the Spirit has borne witness to their spirit that they are a child of God. This is a biblical notion of assurance, though, that the Spirit has borne witness to your spirit deep within your soul. And you should recognize it. Anyone can claim it, but only one whose hope and glory stands on the character that's produced by endurance that comes from suffering can possibly rest in this assurance. If, in fact, that's the case for you, then the Spirit is testifying to you that you are a child of God. And you can be assured, if you are such, that glory belongs to you as well. If God is working in us now to transform our character, then He will surely carry on that work to the very end. Because of what you know in the Gospel about suffering, you can be assured that your justification is true and that your glorification is imminent. Now, there's one last thing, though. We can be assured of glory. Last of all, because of what we see in the Gospel. What do we see? Verse 8. God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do you see in the Gospel? What we see in the Gospel is that God loves us more than we can ever possibly comprehend. And if God loves us, then our faith in Him is not in vain. Karl Barth was a brilliant theologian from Germany, and if not entirely orthodox in all that he preached, he was a great thinker and a great contributor to theological thought. And towards the end of his life, he visited the United States and in one session with students, question and answer about theology and so forth, one student asked him this, Dr. Bart, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? Now that's a question that most of us can't feel because it assumes that we've had great thoughts. But this was a man who could feel that question. And so the old man sat for a moment and he thought, he gathered his great thoughts, and then he answered with this, the greatest thought that's ever passed through my mind is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We outgrow that, don't we? It's a children's song, after all. I mean, at some point, we don't sing that to ourselves anymore because it's, it's for our kids. Oh, it's good stuff, but it's for our kids. And after all, it's so simple. What we really want is complex theology. We want something that we can sink our teeth into. What we want is something difficult that we can argue about and debate and discuss on the theological fronts of the Internet or the church lobby. We want something that we can impress other people in the church with. But let me tell you, if you don't see in the gospel that God loves you more than you will ever be able to comprehend, then the good news will always be faint to you. Always. No matter how brilliant you are. It's not faint to Paul here. In the first four chapters of this letter, he has spoken, written about the word faith or belief over 20 times in the first four chapters because he's absolutely concerned to verify what it is we believe about the gospel. He writes in those chapters about life only three times. In those chapters, those early chapters, he writes of the Romans, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He longs to see them so that they may be mutually encouraged by one another in their faith. And he explains that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Those first four chapters, he's absolutely concerned to solidify and concern what it is we believe About the gospel. What is our faith anyway? In the next four chapters, he changes gears. He uses that term faith only twice in the next four chapters, but he uses the term life more than 20 times. He changes gears and begins to say, This justification brings life for all who believe. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too may live a new life, he says, and present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. What you believe, Paul says, should change your life. It should affect the way that you live. And so because of your justification by faith alone in Christ alone, you are assured of glory and you see it in the life that God has given you to live. And his love for you is the proof. His love for you that you can't comprehend, his love for you that will not let you go, is the proof of it. Knowing our skeptical logic, though, Paul, of course, tries to help us a bit. In verse 6, he says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he states the obvious, that in our circles, it's really not popular to die for other people. He says, for a righteous person, person, that is, someone who's coldly obedient to all the laws, nobody's going to die for that one because who likes that person anyway? But for a good person, he says, that is, a warm and likable person, the popular person, maybe somebody is willing to die for that one, though probably not. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this being true, how much more will he save us from God's wrath, Paul writes. But there's more than that. In verse 10, he says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, if God reconciled his enemies, he will surely save his friends. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul will write. Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? No, he says. Neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things to come, present or things to come, nor powers or authorities, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because of your justification by faith, you can be assured, Paul says, that one day you will stand in glory. What you have, what you know, and what you see assure you that it's true. May we pray. O oh Lord, we pray that You would cause us to believe, to recognize the truth of Your Word and how You verify it to us daily, even as Your Spirit testifies to our spirits, even as You have filled us by Your Spirit with Your own love in our hearts, even as we struggle against our own sin and at times doubt because of it, We pray that you would cause us to recognize what we have and what we know and what we see in the gospel so that we might rest assured that glory is ours because it is yours. And by faith in Jesus, your righteousness is counted as ours. And no one will take that away. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name